This is episode 49 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Often as believers, we think in absolutes, and rightly so, for much of Scripture deals with absolutes, actually like polar opposite absolutes. Think about it. You have God is good, Satan is bad. You have good fruit, and then you have bad fruit, and nothing in between. You're either hot or cold, and if you find yourself in between what Jesus calls lukewarm, well, you know how that turns out. He says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Ouch. And when it comes to faith, the opposite of it is doubt and unbelief. But we have a tendency to believe that faith is more powerful than doubt because it is by faith we enter into a saving relationship with the Lord, and it is by faith we strive to experience the higher Christian life. Well, I don't want to rain on your parade, but in a sense, doubt and unbelief are far more powerful than faith, and they can actually limit the power of God in your life. That's right. Limit the power of the Holy Spirit and by definition, limit any hope of growing closer to the Lord. Now, if you find this statement uncomfortable, well, join the club. I don't like the way it sounds either. But before you dismiss it out of hand, take a quick listen as we explain this amazing truth that can hinder, even defeat any effort on your part to experience the higher Christian life. And that fact alone is sobering. So let's jump right in, shall we? We um, have been talking about the book of Acts, looking at the book of Acts as a um, training manual for the early church that God laid out for us, that example being the only example we have of what church is supposed to be like. And I shared with you a couple um, uh, weeks ago that we're going to be looking at it with different eyes. Instead of focusing on the linear events that take place. Oh, there's uh, Damascus Road over here, and here's these things that happen here, and on and on and on, and just hitting the high points, which most of the time when we're studying, that's what we do, kind of in a historical narrative. We're going to be trying to focus on the believers, the, what they were like, what the faith meant to them, how their life was changed by believing the promises that were fulfilled. And the major promise, of course, is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And we've talked about this over and over again, but I want, we're going to focus on it today. I want you to try to imagine you hearing these words from Christ himself and you believing, because you've already left your family and homes and jobs and everything to follow Jesus. Because you follow Jesus, you've been excommunicated out of what they would call the church back then, from uh, the synagogue, you are worse than not even having a COVID vaccine passport. You couldn't buy and sell from people who are committed Jews because they didn't want anything to do with you. They almost considered you unclean now because you've abandoned the faith and followed this Messiah. This Messiah, by the way, that was killed on a cross, which meant to their way of thinking that God's judgment was upon this Jesus. Of course, he raised from the dead, they didn't believe that, you did, and you're sitting here following him, trusting him, but he's gone, soon going to be leaving, and now you've got to figure out how to handle it yourself. Even the leaders of your movement, Peter, some of the other disciples, had almost given up and gone back fishing. 
end of John. And all of a sudden, Jesus showed up and basically recommissioned Peter and asked him, do you love me more than your old life? Do you love me more than these 153 fish we've caught? Do you love me more than everything that feels comfortable to you? Are you ready to step out in the darkness in trust? So that's who we are as we're hearing this message. Now, what he says is this, but you, every one of us, you as a believer, you will receive something. I'm leaving, but I'm going to give you something that inaugurates my kingdom. You will receive power. Incredible word here, dudamos. It means explosive, miracle-working, wondrous, hard to explain, always pointing to God, power. When is that going to happen? I mean, is it going to happen today, tomorrow, the next day? When is it going to happen? Well, the event that will inaugurate power in your life, not mercy or grace or love or the ability to teach or the ability to sing or administrative gifts or any of that, it's power. You shall receive power when? When what? When this Weird thing that's hard to understand happens when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal, co-powerful, co-authoritative with God the Father comes upon you. So what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon me? What's my job? What's my calling? As a believer in Christ, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to form communes and, and huddle up like the Amish and keep the big, bad, boogeyman world out there and, and bring everything in here and, and just live our quiet little chaste life, hoping the world will leave us alone. No, no, that would be easy, but that's not what he called the church and us to do. You shall be my witnesses. Witnesses to me, giving eyewitness accounts of what I have done for you in the hostile environment of that day for these believers. In Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish intelligentsia and the political state. Witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. We don't want you to, to slight those people and eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's your calling, church. But you can't do any of this without power. Power. And it's that word power that I really want to focus on today. And the reason why this is kind of those watershed uh, messages is because you're going to have a choice. And you're going to have a choice to be able to incorporate what is already yours into your life or not. And it all is going to be predicated on whether you believe or whether you don't. Whether you believe his word or your experience. His word or what you've been taught in a Laodicean church age in an apathetic, lukewarm church. His word or what feels comfortable to you. It's all based on power. So as we always do when we look at a section of scripture, or we're looking at a phrase or a verse, we ask some questions. These are the questions that I had. These are the questions I asked the Lord. These are the questions that, as I'm studying this, I need to know the answer. I, I, I need to know when you're going to reveal this to me. And as I've shared with you before, if you earnestly ask God questions about passages and themes and stuff you're studying, he will faithfully answer you. Not if you just 
Let me skim by. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yawn. I, I checked that off my Bible reading schedule. I really don't care about what I read. If you, if you don't have any questions or intent of, of trying to learn something or be changed by something or have truth imputed to you, you're not going to know when it happens. So you ask questions. Questions. Why was this early church able to live in the power that they received to the extent that they were? I mean, their life is turned upside down. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, pre- Peter preaches this you know, small sermon record that we have here, and it's pretty direct. 3,000 people get saved, and the early church has abandoned everything we hold on to for the sake of the gospel, meeting daily in the temple courts, a hostile environment, praising God, meeting daily in the homes, breaking bread, having fellowship and favor with all the people, and God is adding to their numbers daily. Wonder how many people are added to the kingdom of God daily among us. They were overwhelmed by what they had discovered. We can't help but preach and teach what we've heard. Whether you flog us, whether you put us in jail, no matter what you command, the fact is God has changed our life and it's gonna be wonderful. They acted like they did on the power they received when the Holy Spirit came upon them. We claim that the Holy Spirit has come upon us, but did they have a different kind of power than we have today? Was the Holy Spirit different back then than it is today, or was it the same power? And if it's the same Holy Spirit they received and the same Holy Spirit that we received, then what's the difference here? Why are things not the way they should be? Um, Their lives were marked by unashamed power. When is the last time you had the confidence to head into Walmart, and I'm speaking to myself too, head into Walmart like Peter and John are heading into the temple with the same Holy Spirit that you have, and they see somebody on the side of the Walmart building crippled with a little sign up, and you, know, you give donations and stuff of that nature, to walk up to them and say, you know, I don't have any cash. I just have a debit card, that's not going to help you. You know, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, by the power invested in me, let me give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. We don't even think about doing that. Well, gosh, if I do that and nothing happens, it makes me really look stupid. And I don't want to look stupid, so I'm just kind of looking at that person, maybe toss them a buck and, and move on. Well, wait a second, that's not what they did. I mean, they understood this captivating power that they had, but they utilized it, and we don't. So again, question, was their power greater than ours? Was, they, was the Holy Spirit more powerful back then than he is today? Did he bless those people more than he blesses us today, which makes God choosing favorites? Or did they understand more about it? Than we do to that they act on it, that they believe more. I mean, what can we learn from the early church? Not Peter and James and John, but how about just the common people, the everyday people, the unnamed people of the 120? How does that work? Key word is power. I've shared this word with you many, many times. It's used over 120 times in the New Testament. Dudamas power. Excelsia is power like authority. And the example I gave to you a long time ago was David Myers in his police uniform in the middle of the highway holding his hand up and a semi-truck coming at him at 70 miles an hour. If David Myers had Dudamas power, it'd be like Superman. 
And as soon as he came, he would hit his hand and the truck would disintegrate because he had the power in and of himself to stop that. But he doesn't. He has exhaustive power, authority power, and by virtue of who he is and the badge and the uniform, the truck stops. That's not the kind of power we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of power that is contained, that is focused to be able to change lives. Used 120 times in the New Testament. It's translated as the word power, specifically miraculous power, 77 of those 120 times. It is also translated mighty works, or wonder, or strength, or miracle, or about a uh, half a dozen times, some other miscellaneous kind of phrases that it uses for the word power, for dudamas power. Here, for example, it's translated power in Matthew 6, 13, the end of the Lord's prayer. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, and is praise to God, for yours is the kingdom, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, and the explosive Dudamas miracle-working power, and the glory forever, amen. And a chapter later, Jesus is kind of chastising them because of just words that they had, rather than actually living in that power. And he says to this, many will say to me in that day, Lord, 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 did we not do prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonders in your name? Acts of power, dudamas power, exact same word. Now, when it comes to this power, one of the difficult things it is for us to accept after the enlightenment, I think, therefore I am, and therefore my intelligence and my mind is the arbiter of what is really true. And if I can't conceive it in my mind, if it's not logical, rational, and practical, by the way, miracles never are, then, uh, then I, I, I reject it as not being real. But if you look at the scripture, one of the things that you find out is the Lord has a tendency, almost exclusively, of verifying and attesting to the truthfulness of his word and the messenger by affiliating it with power. Some man stands up here and says, thus the Lord says. What am I supposed to accept it on your word alone? This person over here says, thus saith the Lord, and it's manifest with power that only God can do. And then we go, oh, God must be speaking, not because of the words that he spoke, but because of the signs and wonders and power that accompanied that. We call those miracles. And the Bible is full of miracles. I'm going to give you a quick survey of the Old Testament. We have Moses and the sorcerers, remember? They say one thing, Moses says another. He has a staff, they have a staff. He throws his staff down, they throw their staff down. They both turn into snakes, but Moses eats theirs. And then all of a sudden, there's another thing that happens, and another thing that happens, and pretty soon the sorcerers can't match that. They go, whoa, there's a power here greater than ours, which points not to Satan, but points to God and authenticates Moses' words. Waters turn to blood. They come to the Red Sea. We need a power move. We need something to do. We don't have enough men to fight against uh, Pharaoh's armies, although there's a pillar of fire separating us. So he parts the Red Sea. Moses understands God by miracles, a, a burning bush. He's in the wilderness. There's this 
strikes the rock and water comes from the rock. He sends manna from heaven, kind of some of the verses Justice was reading today. These are miracles. Then everything is established. And in Moses, or God wants to make sure that people are serving him the right way. So we have Nahum and Nadab and Abihu who are killed because they brought strange fire into the temple of God. And if you read a little past that in Exodus, you'll find that most likely they were drunk. And they went in there and God struck them dead. Then we have Korah and the rebellion. The earth swallows up and and consumes them and their family and their possessions because they violated God's word. Those looking around would go, man, I ain't going to mess with God. This is incredible. This is an incredible act of power. When they crossed over to the promised land, just like the Red Sea, the Jordan River was, was dried up so they could walk across. Do you remember? One after another, after another, after another. It's miracle, 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 miracle. How is God's people separated from the people of the world? How is the temple of worship of Baal different from the worship of God? Because of power. Because of what happens with power. We have the fall of Jericho. We're not going to get a military campaign. We're going to do something so stupid. We're going to walk around it for seven days. And on the seventh days, we're going to walk around it multiple times. We're going to blow the trumpet And these mighty walls that are big enough, they said at the top, to have chariot races on them, will fall down. Not in or out, but collapse straight down. Why? Power. Power that authenticates God's behind them. We have Balaam's donkey all of a sudden speaking and giving a prophecy. Where did Samson's strength come from? It came from the power of God. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego preserved in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. It's like going through, you know, flannel graph stories with little kids, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Every time we try to teach one of our children stories about God, they almost always are tied with miracles. We have Jonah and the the great fish. When we get to the New Testament, we've got Lazarus, we've got the widow of Nain's son, we've got other people that are raised from the dead by Jesus. And then we have this multitude of miracles Jesus did. You know, blind person over here. I've got deaf people over here. I'm casting out demons over here. I'm feeding 5,000 people and and 3,000 men with just a a sack lunch. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Then that ends. And we get to the book of Acts. And it's again, continuation of miracles. Somebody hears preaching, he's preaching all night, falls out of the second story window, dies. One of the disciples lays on top of him like Elijah did, and all of a sudden he comes back to life. We've got people that receive their sight, people that are healed. Book of Acts continues the story of Jesus. There are miracles referred to in the epistles. There's miracles that take place in the Revelation. Our life with Christ biblically should be defined by him working in us with the power he promised we already have through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power, power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God's practice in his word has been to authenticate his word and those who proclaim his word, that's how we know somebody's from God or are not God, with signs and wonders and miracles. One example, okay, there's Elijah who represents Jehovah and there's 450 prophets of Baal and Asherah. 
And so here's what we'll do. Let's, you have your message and your worldview and I have mine. There's just me and there's all of you. So let's build an altar. We'll build an altar after a three year, three and a half year drought. We'll build an altar, we'll slaughter the animal, we'll put the drain, the grain trough around it and, and we'll uh, go ahead and call out to God. You call out to your God and see if he responds in power. I'll call out to my God. The first one who responds by power, that's God and you go first. And so they all night, all day long, they cried out to Baal, they danced around, they cut themselves with knives and nothing happened. Now it is Elijah's turn. In the middle of a drought, he has gallons and gallons of water poured on it to absolutely soak it so much so that the grain trough is overflowing with water. He calls on his God, what happens? Power, power. The message and the messenger are authenticated by power. And the people believed, not because of the word they heard, but because of the power that authenticated the word, just like in the book of Acts. Same way in Jesus' life. We're in John chapter 3, and Jesus is being met by night by a man named Nicodemus, a rabbi. And he comes to the Lord, and he says, Rabbi, teacher, I'm, I'm calling you an equal. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Well, how? My message is different than yours. I mean, you, you, your fellow Jews hate what I'm doing. How in the world do you know that my message comes by God? Well, no one can do these signs. And if you look at a couple verses uh, earlier in chapter 2, the latter part of that, you'll see that Jesus was performing signs and miracles power things in Jerusalem at that time. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. It's power that authenticated Christ's words to the point that it drew Nicodemus to him late at night. Okay, do you believe what I just shared with you? Biblical basis for that, you see that? Back to the issue, back to the question. Okay, if that's true, and here's what Jesus promised. You shall receive power. Put your name in there. Steve, you shall receive power. What kind of power? Same kind of power that, that has been used 77 times in the New Testament. Same kind of power that Jesus used. That's what the word means. Deutimus, explosive, miracle-working power. We get the word dynamite, explosive, from this word deutimus. You shall receive power. Well, when? I want that power. I want the power manifest in my life. When will that happen? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Oh, well, when did that happen? Well, if you're a believer here, you already have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has already come upon you. We find out from Paul's letters that the Holy Spirit is our deposit, our guarantee of our future inheritance to come. It's the Holy Spirit that confirms our salvation. The difference between a lost person who claims to be a Christian and a and a saved person who is a Christian is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you claim to be a Christian and the Holy Spirit doesn't live within you, you are deceiving yourself, like I did for so many years before I truly got saved. That Holy Spirit already exists in you. And if so, what comes with the Holy Spirit is power. This is the words of Christ. You either believe it or you don't. 
You either accept it or you don't. He's either lying or he's telling the truth. Or like most of us, well, he's telling the truth for somebody else, but he's not telling the truth for me. Or he's telling the truth for them back there, but not for us today. You'll receive power, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Theological question. Does the Holy Spirit live in you? Well, if I'm a Christian, yes. Yes, he does. Okay. So if so, if you believe the promise, where are the results? Where are the results? What, uh, how is this power manifested today? How is it manifested in your life? How is it manifested in my life? How is it manifested in the life of the church today? How is this explosive, miracle-working, Holy Spirit-impacted power changing anyone's life, including ours? And Justice was up here sharing the passages from Psalm 78, talking about sin. I thought, you know, the sin we commit every day. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about besetting sins? You know, before we had the Lord's Supper, besetting sins? You know, and is, do you have this Holy Spirit in you powerful enough to rid you of your besetting sins? Well, yes. And how many people since that time, and I've offered an opportunity at least once, maybe twice, to share how God and his power has rid you of your besetting sins. Do you know how many people have raised their hands and said, let me tell you what God's done? One. One. Well, and I just don't have time, or you know, I just, I don't know. I just, I, it doesn't seem that important to me. I just, I believe it, but I haven't incorporated it into my life. I, I, I don't know. But the rest of us, well, uh, I understand that, but <clears throat> can we just talk about something else? No, we can't. This is too important. Power, power. All right, so why don't we see power? Um, well, there's a couple reasons. One of the reasons could be uh, God's just evil and doesn't, he blessed Tammy because he likes Tammy, you know, like me, so therefore there's no power. Or theologically, here's why we say we don't receive power. And I want you to please listen to this. Shared this with you a number of years ago. And I want you to understand how we since we're not experiencing, have to somehow go through mental gymnastics. You will learn this in doctrinal programs in seminary, by the way, that you will have to somehow twist this around in such a way that it's not our fault we're not receiving the power. Can't be God's fault. It has to be something in between. Reason why we don't receive power anymore is God just doesn't do miracles anymore. Really, why? Why doesn't he do miracles? You know, you have two sets of Christian in here. You've got charismatic and non-charismatic. The charismatics believe he does miracles, but he really doesn't much in, in their movement. They kind of hype it up so it seems like they are. And we have the other group over here that and says, well, no, God just doesn't do those anymore. Theologically, he just doesn't. Why? Why? Well, it's really simple because the whole point of miracles back then was to authenticate the gospel and to authenticate the, the gospel proclaimers and those 
you know, who spoke prophecy, but since we have the word of God, we don't need any more prophecy anymore because we're adding to the completed canon. So therefore, there's no need for miracles. There's no need for power. There's no need for prophecy. There's no need for apostles. There's no need for any of that because we have it all right now. Wow. It's great, isn't it? It's fantastic since we've got it all and don't need what they had back then. And the verse that they quote because my question is always, oh, show me. If that's true, show me. It's what I was taught in seminary. It's what most Bible teachers teach today, or at least the ones that we would follow. Show me. Explain that to me. Show me in Scripture. Okay. And the passage they always go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8 through 10. The first part of 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love. You know, love never fails, and uh, love is this, and love is that, and love is this, and love is that, and the stuff we do with weddings. And it ends with love never fails. Love never fails. And then it goes on, and this is the passage that theologians use to justify the fact that God doesn't do miracles today. Love never fails. Okay, but whether there are prophecies, oh yeah, prophecies, they will fail. Okay, where there are tongues, because guys that don't believe in miracles don't believe in tongues either, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, oh, that means we're all dumb. No, it must be, must be some other word of knowledge, like a word of knowledge, like, like guys do on television. You know, you've seen it. I see somebody out there. Uh, I don't know your name, but you have the back pain right now. God's healing that back pain. Send me $20. See that kind of stuff? That's how we interpret word of knowledge. I remember it more when I was a young kid watching Romper Room. It was a show on television and Romper Room and I would sit in front of it and the lady had this magic wand and she would just circle and she would look into the wand and she would tell everybody, you know, who was, oh, I see John out there smiling and oh, so I'd be sitting in front of the TV smiling as big as I could, never called my name, you know? And that's kind of like what we interpret word of knowledge. So that's what that must mean, that kind of knowledge. It will vanish. Why? For we know in part now, and we prophesy in part, because none of us has complete knowledge, but when that which is the perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. That makes sense. I don't know everything now, and so therefore I, I know Christ as much as I do, but not perfectly. I, I can speak his word as much as I know, but not perfectly. I, I can minister, but not as perfectly, because I can only minister to the extent of my own ability, and that is in part. But when the perfect comes, then there'll be no part. There'll be no less than perfect because the perfect will be with us. Okay, so what is the perfect? Well, to those people who believe in a cessationist view of the power of the Holy Spirit, they say the perfect is the completed word of God. Really? Well, I can pick that right up from this passage, can't you? That he's talking about the word of God when he says perfect. Then he goes on. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Then there's a then and when. There's a time right now and a time that's going to come. For, for now, when? Right now, we see in a mirror dimly. Right now, we only know in part Right now, we only know about Christ, what we read, and what we experience about him through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Someday when we see him, we'll know everything. For now, we can see in a mirror dimly, but then, 
At some point in the future, when some event happens, we'll see face to face, intimately. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, I shall know just as I am known. I will know him like I am known by him. Okay. That's the theological position. I'm serious. I'm serious. This is what you get taught in the school. Because of this passage, God doesn't move anymore the way he did. Okay, well, when is the then time? Well, it's the then time at some point in time in the future, and you can tell from the context that that then time is when Christ comes. Now, I'll be real honest with you. The passages I just read, is there any possible way that you would believe that the perfect was the word of God unless somebody taught you that. It's like, who's the perfect? Well, the, the perfect is Christ. No, 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 no. That, that seems what it says and what it means, but that's really not what it means. What it means is the completed canon of Scripture. About 80, 90, 80, 100, when all of a sudden the Bible was completely put together, although the church didn't finally accept that until the fourth century, until that was all taken place. And then therefore, that's the perfect. When the perfect comes, then there's no need for anything else. There's no need for prophecies. Okay, there's no need for tongues. Okay, there's no need for knowledge. We're just going to deal with that later. And I mean, this is, this, is, um, this is the position, position I believe for a long time until I started looking at the Scripture. There's no way when they read this letter at the Church of Corinth that they go, oh, oh, I get it. It's the Scriptures that haven't even been written yet when they all get combined at some point in time after we're all dead, and then that, that, that's the perfect, something that hasn't even happened yet that I can't even conceive in my mind. Holy Spirit doesn't do that. When he sends his letter out, it was primarily written to the people in that church of Corinth to deal with what they were dealing with then, not something that we theologically make up to justify why God doesn't move in our lives today. Or the other explanation is the fact that, well, um, you know, the Lord showed us what the church was like in Acts chapter, uh, in the book of Acts, working on 100% of spiritual gifts and 100% of prophetic offices. But today, we're only supposed to work on 60% of those. Really? That's just like God, just like you and I, if we were God. We would show our kids how to do it with 100% of all the money that we have. You know, if you're going to build a business, I did it and I had this much money, and, but I want you to do it with less. And then I want to have the audacity to claim they had the abundant life and you can have the abundant life, but you can only have the abundant life with less than what they had. So where do you get the 60% from? Well, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's what is written in our scripture. God has appointed these in the church. Well, wait, 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 wait. Just that church or all churches? Or is it, yeah, that church and all churches, but not for all time. Just that church and all churches just for back then. Do you see that anywhere in this passage? You see that anywhere in scripture? No, we just do that because it makes us feel better today. He first, apostles. Can't have apostles. We don't want apostles. 
Apostles are kind of scary. So uh, no, this doesn't apply to us. No apostles. Okay. Prophets. Can't have prophets. We don't need prophets because nobody speaks from God anymore because we have the word of God and everything we need is found in the word of God. Okay. Teachers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We'll accept the teacher part. We're rejecting the apostles. We're rejecting the prophets. We'll accept the teachers because we need teachers today. So in our mind, that one's okay. So two good, two down, one we're going to stick to. Miracle, uh, no miracles. We don't want miracles anymore. So that's like the apostles and prophets and miracles. So we're going to reject one, two, and four. We're going to accept three. Really? Uh, gifts of healings? Ah, that's kind of the miracle things. We're going to dump that too. So we're going to accept one, two, and we're going to reject one and two, four and five. We're only going to accept three. How about helps? Yeah, kind of. I mean, helps is kind of encouragement and stuff of that nature, counseling. and Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. So we'll take two of these. We'll keep uh, three and six. We'll dump one, two, four and five. Administrations? Oh, yeah, got to have administrations. We got to run the business. We got to keep things going. So we'll have an administration. So we'll accept that one. How about variety of tongues? Ain't no way. That's back with the miracle stuff. And we're going to dump that. Is this how God runs his church? It lets us to decide what we accept and don't accept? I mean, if you're going to reject it all, then you reject it all. But you can't piecemeal it. We don't need teachers. We don't need administration. We don't need uh, the gift of helps. We just don't need anything. So God appointed these in his church, but we don't need those appointed enough for us today. And so therefore we're exhibiting the same kind of spiritual fervency like they had in the first church. Isn't that crazy? Oh, it continues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? I got the first two. All right, yeah, I understand the logic here. Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do I do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And then it moves right into chapter 13 about love. Okay, so I'm looking at this. Are all apostles? No. But some were. Are all prophets? No. But somewhere are all teachers in here. Are all of you teachers? No, but some are. And if you have this logic with some of these, you can't reject them all. But we have. We have because we have to somehow explain away the fact that God is not moving in our life the way he moved back then. And the reason he's not doing that cannot be us. It can't be us. It has to be either him or some theological deal or we do away with that kind of stuff for this absolutely, incredibly faulty logic. It's a five-fold ministry that God gave to the church. And what we're going to do is say, Lord, we're only going to function on 60% of that. And it shows. And he himself, God, gave some, not everybody, but some to be apostles, one, and some to be prophets, two. I feel uncomfortable with those. I, you know, he said that, but I don't want those to be functional today. All right, and some implied not all to be evangelists. Oh yeah, he can be an evangelist. I can mentally accept an evangelist. An evangelist doesn't have miracle working power. An evangelist is someone who's called to share the gospel. Okay, and some as pastors and some as teachers. We accept evangelists 
pastors and teachers because they can function really well in the flesh. But to be an apostle or a prophet, you have to function with power. See the difference? I can function without power as a teacher. It's better if I have power with a teacher, but I'm perfectly capable of doing it myself. Many, I won't say most, but many of the seminary professors I studied under were lost. Were lost. They were very gifted in their subject. And their subject was like New Testament theology. But they were lost. And they could get a PhD. They could grant degrees. They could teach people like us. But there was no power behind it. And this is how we agree to accept it. Well, why would God do that? Why would God, after the first century, maybe after the book of Acts, why would God choose to handicap his church for 2,000 years? Or if it was true that there are some gifts that were supposed to die out with the book of Acts or at the first century, then why would he even tell them about it? Tell us about it. It's kind of like, um, hey, um, listen, let me, let me tell you. Uh, you're getting ready to open your Christmas presents, and um, I want you to know that uh, I was going to get you this really cool game system. I, mean, I know you really like this really cool game system. Before you open that gift, I just want you to know that, man, I had every intention of giving that to you. I mean, I, I, I gave it to some other people, and I was going to give it to you, but I decided that, you know, you don't need that gaming system. I mean, the fact is, I'm here, and you should just be satisfied with that. And so what I did, instead of giving you the gaming system, and I know you're excited, I got you a sweater and some socks. Are you excited about opening the gift? I wish you hadn't told me what you were going to do because then it makes what you are doing seem pale by comparison. Why would God do that? Unless it was meant for all of us at all time. And if you think about it, what is the purpose of him even equipping the church this way? Why does he equip it with apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers? I mean, is it for them to go out and and build names into themselves? No, it's to make the church, we continue in Ephesians, the church full, the church powerful. What it says here, I appointed these five-fold ministry here for the equipping of the saints. You know, an apostle and a prophet equip a saint different than an evangelist and a teacher and a pastor do. So if we dump two of those, then they're not fully equipped. I'm to the church in Ephesus. I'm telling you, the Lord says, I'm giving you these five-fold ministries to equip the church in Ephesus, but I'm certainly not going to do that in the church in America. Really? Why? For the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until to what point? We all come to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. That's exactly what's happening today in our church, isn't it? to the perfect man, to the measure of a statue, to the fullness of Christ. We would call this the higher Christian life. Okay, for what purpose? What's the ultimate goal here? Continuing, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We interpret this and we say, well, this is false doctrine. This is doctrine that means that you know, Jesus is not God or there's four people in the Trinity or something of that nature. It could also mean doctrine that convinces you to abandon your birthright of miraculous power promised you by the Holy Spirit. That it's not for you, that it's never been for you, that other people get it, but not 
you by the trickery of men to twist scriptures around it. This is what this means. And, and if you'll read those passages in, in uh, Corinthians 13, you will see that's not what it says. It has nothing to do with the canon of scripture. The cunning, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love imply the church may grow up in all things and in him is who had Christ. And then it again talks about what the end of that is from whom the whole body, the church, joined and knit together by whatever joint supplies. Wish I could unpack that for you right now. According to the effective working, that's the word energeno, where we get the word energy from, working by which every part does its share. Wow, that sounds like church today, doesn't it? Everybody does its share. No, we've digressed church into a religion that one or somebody does their share, a few people do their share, primarily everybody else comes and listens and participates. We even set it up in such a way that it's a teaching module rather than an experiencing module. We tried putting chairs in a circle, do you remember? Everybody felt uncomfortable. I would rather look at the back of somebody's head and words on a big PowerPoint up there rather than each other and ministry and stuff of that nature. Everyone does its share, and it causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So, this is the introduction. Let me just draw it to a close. Why is this so important? You have to understand it and believe it first. And for most of us who are former Baptists, most of us who are... you know, come from a non-charismatic background, what I've just preached to you sounds like heresy. It sounds anathema. That God, God really would have the audacity to continue doing what he promised to do in the New Testament? Yeah, I think he does. And if he does, then the reason why we're not seeing it manifested in our life is not him. We can't blame him anymore. Maybe it's us. Maybe it's us. And all that can change today, right here, right here. Let me show you this. Um, And I want you to get your mind around this before we start, because this may come off a little extreme, like taking a gun to a knife fight. There's a certain amount of power to do something. The American troops are going to land at Iwo Jima. And we think we've got enough power to do that. We've got all the soldiers there. We're going to bomb the beachhead. Then we're going to go ahead and move in our landing craft at World War II. We're going to take Iwo Jima. There's a certain element of power and strength to, to accomplish anything. So this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do in our life. This is what we're going to to ask Christ to do through us. There's a certain amount of power and spiritual strength that it takes to do. But if the forces, using Iwo Jima as an example, hit the beach and were repelled, if the Germans kicked the Allies off Normandy, if all the power to do something was thwarted by someone, it means that someone else had more power than we have to do to keep us from doing. You understand? If they didn't have enough power to keep us from doing, we would do. But if we're doing 
and our doing is repulsed by some other force, then obviously, logically, that other force must be stronger, at least in our vernacular, than the force we had committed to doing. We see that in any game of football. We see that in anything that we do. Power to do, power to stop, get them together, whichever one is stronger wins. It works exactly the same way in your life. Listen very carefully. The most powerful thing in you is not your faith. The most powerful thing in you is your doubt and unbelief. Now, through your faith, God and his power can do anything. But the only thing that will stymie God moving in your life through your faith is your doubt and unbelief. So therefore, in your life and my life as individual Christians, our doubt and unbelief is stronger than whatever magnanimous, powerful, wonderful thing God wants to do in our life. Do you see that? Doesn't mean that you're stronger than God, but when God wants to move in your life, you can, you can nip it in the bud just like that. And as Justice pointed out today, you can continue nipping it in the bud time and time and time and time and time again until the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to find somebody else to move through because obviously this person's unbelief and doubt is not letting me in. You can doubt and the doubt in you, the unbelief in you, the sin in you, the besetting sin in you can nullify everything you receive from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't nullify the Holy Spirit. It nullifies his ability and willingness to move in and through you. You can literally limit the Spirit of God in your life by doubt and unbelief. That's why I spent so much time in the beginning showing you the truth. You either accept it or you don't. And if you don't accept it's possible and part of your birthright for God to move in your life, he ain't. You're not going to let him. You're going to keep that door shut. Or if you pray tonight, God, you know, show me what's standing between me and a deeper relationship with you because I want you to move in my life to the bear more spiritual fruit and, and just let me manifest your love. And he shows you what that is and you refuse to do anything about it. You have shut that door. You haven't limited God, but you've limited his ability and willingness to move in your life. Think about it. Think about it. And let me give you an example. Mark chapter 2, or Mark chapter 6, says this. It says, And Jesus went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished. And here's what they said. Where did these man, where does this man get these things? Well, what things? The wisdom which was given to him and such dudamas, mighty, powerful works by the exact same word of the promise given to you in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He's manifesting those and they're being performed by his hand in the group. He's come to his own town. He's not just preaching the message, 
but he's actually performing Dudamas powerful miracles in their midst. And they're shocked. Where did this man get the wisdom to do these things? It's like Nicodemus. I mean, surely you must hang with God because no one can do the signs that you do. He's authenticating his ministry to those people who knew him the best, which means they knew he never sinned. He was always a good son to his his parents. It means that he was probably the nicest guy in town they ever met. They knew who he was. It wasn't like a guy just got out of prison, coming back home after 20 years and trying to reestablish a relationship. And yet, doubt crept in. Doubt. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. I mean, how could this guy be living in our midst and we didn't even know who he was? I mean, the fact is, only God can perform miracles like this. And and if he's performing miracles like this, I don't understand that at all. As a matter of fact, I I know this guy. And I'm ignoring what I just saw with my eyes. I mean, this is not the carpenter, uh, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Josie, Judith, and Simon. Are his sisters not here? And they were offended at him. Why? What were you offended at? That he's working miracles? No, because all of a sudden they were confronted with a truth bigger than themselves. They had an opportunity to believe or not believe. I will believe based on the miracles that he is the son of God. That means my life's going to change. I'm going to have to commit to him. It's going to radically change everything that I felt comfortable with in my lackluster lackluster little Jewish life. But now, no, no, I I don't want to commit to that. So therefore, I'm going to find fault in him. Sisters and brothers, I mean, they can't have. Now I'm offended at him, not by what he did, by what he's making me do. Verse 4, as we know, familiarity always breeds contempt, especially regarding spiritual truths that make us feel uncomfortable. Like this truth I'm sharing with you today probably is making you feel uncomfortable. Look what happens. But Jesus said to them, the prophet is not without honor in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own home. Whenever even a group of Christians like us come together and we're presented with a truth that stretches us, that means there's more to, there's more to our life than the six, seven, or eight that I'm comfortable with. That maybe, maybe God could really work in my life in, a, in an incredible way, but then I'm going to have to put him first over my family, over my business, over my retirement, over my money, over the things that I want to do. And I don't want to do that, so therefore, I'm going to reject it. And then he continues. Now he, although he wanted to, although he was equipped to, although he had the power to do that, although he had been doing some of those things, could do no mighty Dudamas, powerful work. It didn't say he chose not to do them. It says he could not do them. Why? Well, except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. That may have been what the people had noticed before. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Could he not do them because of the unbelief? Well, it's implied here. And then, as the message just is preached, he left them and took it somewhere else brought it home to you first, and you rejected it, so therefore I'm going to go on a circuit teaching because I'm limiting the Holy Spirit. God could, was not able, could not do mighty works in their midst. Something about them 
was limiting the power of God in their lives. When he wanted to do more, he was already doing more, and they stymied it, they stopped it, they shut it off in their life. We look at Acts chapter 1, and we see the promise there. And we ask, is that really true for us in our lives today? And if so, what is, what is keeping me from experience like we've been talking about this higher Christian life, the Acts 1, Acts 2 life? Well, what is doing that? Is it God doing that, or... Could it be something else? You know, I've been blaming it on God, but maybe it's not God. Maybe it's something else. Not real clear in Mark, but the passage in Matthew lays it out for us perfectly. Here's a parallel account of what I just read. So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many powerful, mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus came, son of God, just all the power in the world in him, and he was going to do some mighty works. He began doing some mighty works, and they shut it off because of their unbelief. There was a power in them. There's no real way to say it, and it almost sounds blasphemous. There was a power in them that in this situation and in their lives was greater than the power in him. He wanted to move in their lives. They said no. So the answer was, no, get out of here. I'm going to do it anyway. The answer was, okay. It's like in Romans chapter 1 where it talks about God gave them up and God gave them over and God gave them up. The freedom that God gives us, unfortunately, is to experience the consequences of our own sins. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. It was their unbelief that limited the power of God in their lives. And it is unbelief and sin, but primarily unbelief, that limits the power of God in our lives. Now, Justice looked at, um, this last one I'm going to show you. Justice looked at uh, Psalm 78, and it's a long psalm. And he laid it out for you today about what it all talked about at the very end. But there's a a phrase in here that really caught my attention when God is talking about what they did to him. And it's in verse 40 and 41. Watch this. It says, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they tempted and tested God. And in doing so, limited limited the Holy One of Israel. God was going to carry them out on eagle's wings. God had marvelous plans for them. He was going to cross the the Red Sea, move them right into the promised land, but they said no. They sent 10 spies out and they came back. Uh, Most of them gave a negative report and God says, you have limited what I wanted to do. So the next 38 years, all of you who doubted me are going to die until I raise up a new generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, and move them into the promised land. That's the story of the wilderness wandering. They limited the Holy One of Israel, just like we are limiting the Holy Spirit working in us because of power, because of doubt and fear and unbelief. So Lord, what do I do with this? Well, let me ask you a couple questions, Steve. Are you limiting what I can do in your life? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Do you realize how powerful your doubt is? 
You think it's just, well, I'm supposed to doubt because I'm part of the enlightenment. If I don't understand it in scripture, then I don't necessarily believe it. And I was taught by my heritage and this way by godly men. And certainly they can't be wrong. Do you realize how powerful your doubt is? Do you realize that what your doubt and sin is costing you? That what you could achieve or what I could achieve through you if it wasn't for your doubt and sin. Do you realize what you're losing for nothing? We gain nothing by doubt and unbelief. Nothing except living as a six and a seven and eight, year after year, decade after decade, and think that's okay? And that's the abundant life in Christ when we don't even have the power to give up our besetting sins? because of doubt and unbelief. And for those of you who struggle with this whole idea of the higher Christian life, the I believe it, I see it, I know other people have experienced it. I, 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 at one point in time, my Christian life was better than it is right now. So just being where I was at one point in time would be higher than I am now. But those of you that fail and try and fail and try and fail and try, it may be, Doubt and unbelief. Doubt and unbelief. So let me make it personal and I'll close. Do you believe God is without limits? Do you believe God can do anything he wants to do? Do you believe God's word is true in all situations, no matter how you feel, what you think? I mean, is God limited to your mind? Is God limited by what he can do, by what you can conceive? And if so... How scary is that? It's kind of like, I'm a father and God's a father. And so if, would I want God to be like me? No, no, no. As good as I try to be as a father, I'm failed. He's perfect. He's perfect. So do you believe God is without limits? It's really simple. It's a yes or no answer. Uh, I think he's unlimited with everybody else, but he's limited with me. What a terrible thing to say about God. You think that's humility? It's not humility. It's blaspheming God that he chooses favorites. Do you believe God is without limits? And if the answer is yes, in order for that truth to be activated in your life, it has to be believed. It's just like salvation. Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he was uh, buried in a tomb, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, coming back in glory? Yes. And Satan believes every one of those things. Are you willing to incorporate that into your life by bending your knee to the sovereignty and surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you appropriate that truth that even Satan believes into your life. Do you, do you want to do that, Satan? No. And so it doesn't apply to him. Same truth, but it's the one who receives it that receives the blessing. So, last one. Do you believe this is true? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all who we ask or think. Do you believe God is able to do more than you can even imagine in your mind. And if so, how is that done? According to the power, same word, 
power that works in you. Wow. Yeah, this is a doxology at the end of Ephesians 3. To our God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power given to me by the Holy Spirit, I received at salvation the power that works in you. To him be glory among those people who have the Holy Spirit in them, the church, by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Let it be so. Let it be so. Do you see? Do you see what your doubt and your unbelief has cost you? And by just reversing that and believing God for what he says, do you see the possibilities in our lives as believers and in his church today to make a huge impact as light in darkness in our families, in our communities, and the people we love. And it all, all takes place right here. Amen? Let me pray.